Ready? Yep. Trust your guide. Trust your guide. Fish <laughs> on. Here we go, baby. Let's go. Woohoo! Oh, baby. Bow task. No! That's a big one. Oh, yeah. Nice, Jeff. Snorts were so intimidating. Like, there can't be another animal uh, in North America that can make a sound remotely like that. No. But first, a word for our partners. Alaska Rodco. Alaskan handmade rods. National Wild Turkey Federation South Sound Strutters, your conservation organization for Washington State turkey populations and habitats. Shell Art Studio, original Alaskan focused art. Slay Jays, it ain't all about the catching. Welcome back to another episode of the Young Guides Podcast. I'm Keaton and Kyle will be joining us later. Um, today, we're bringing back on Tyler Kuhn, right? Yep, Kuhn, correct. Kuhn. All right. Um, so we're excited to have him back on uh, our podcast today. Uh, he's going to talk and talk about his previous guide season. Um, and then we're going to get into some, uh, you know, topics about this upcoming guide season and uh, just more in store as we go through this podcast. So really excited and uh, welcome back on to the podcast, Tyler. Thanks. Glad to be back. Yeah. What uh? So how's things been since last time we've talked? What's what's well, things have been? Yeah, things have been really really busy. Uh, last season was probably by far my busiest season that I've had to date, and it's kind of situationally ironic that 2024 is looking already to be bigger than last season. <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of expanded on a lot of the hunting stuff that we do. Got some new areas on my license. Uh, kind of some new opportunities that we can, you know, kind of talk about today. Like, example, I'm going to be taking over a camp up in the Brooks Range for uh, Caribou uh, with a guy that I've been working for for the past about five years, and he's getting ready to retire. So I'm taking over that operation. Uh, a lot more outdoor writing stuff. Uh, my Furfish Game Magazine contributing author venture has gotten, you know, pretty extensive uh, this past year. And I'm also doing a lot of lot of uh, contracts with Sportsman's Channel uh, with several of their TV shows. So, you know, it's it's definitely really, really shaping up. And my uh, my hunting company is growing rapidly. Uh, we're also this. I think I mentioned last episode I was on about the idea of uh, idea of starting up an ecotourism company kind of as a, as a sister company to the hunting thing we do and I got that up and rolling now as well so uh we're definitely this is the first season we're booking for that so I'm hoping that goes good yeah that's awesome um just kind of let's just recap a little bit about uh kind of who you are um talking about I mean you, you talked about your uh, guide service um do you run your guide service and then what's the guide service name and then uh where where have you been at this last year and then you mentioned you're going to the brooks range um but can you like elaborate and kind of explain the growth from this past year to now yeah so uh the hunting company is a team outfitting llc historically we've been in like south central alaska uh when it kind of started out it was 
pretty crazy. So me and my uh, former business partner, Scott Hoover, kind of started out uh, our own operation a few years ago. Scott ended up passing away in some unforeseen circumstances. And then I kind of immediately had to take the reins like on an overnight basis, essentially, uh, you know, essentially funding myself with my own personal finances and capital. And uh, it was a really, really hard, hard setup for sure. And luckily I, for the past, at the time I had set up the company, I had like seven, eight years previous experience with a, in a lot of rapport with a lot of our, you know, routine clientele and they believed in me and what I was trying to do. And those, that customer base stuck. And since we've opened our doors, we've grown substantially every year. I mean, we're pretty much doubling every single season that has gone by for the past several years. Uh, so yeah, we just started off at uh, just a few tents up in the mountains, chasing grizzly bears around on spot and stock hunts. And now I have a, now I have a nice lease on some cabins and with a private runway that we're going to be doing a lot of our hunts out of that we're also going to be getting into ecotourism as well doing northern lights viewing salmon fishing that sort of thing out of those cabins and then one of the guys that i've worked for for several years like i mentioned uh, you know we were going up out of uh unit 26 in alaska up in the brooks range doing caribou and he's finally retiring out and he just approached me with buying out essentially all of his inventory and equipment and everything and uh, kind of taking the reins of it up there. So that's really exciting. I mean, that's about primo when it comes to caribou hunting and Arctic grizzly hunting. So that's going to open up crazy new doorways for us as well. So overall, like I said, especially on the bear hunting side of things, caribou, moose, I mean, we've, we've about doubled uh, all of that from where I was even last season. Yeah. So you, you mentioned ecotourism. Um, I'm not super familiar with ecotourism. Is that just kind of, can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Just um, kind of what is that? Yeah. So ecotourism is kind of a, you know, a blanket term, if you will, for several various industries, that stuff could be like guided hiking, backpacking, uh, northern lights viewing rafting camping that sort of stuff just i like to think of it as a, it's pretty much anything outside of the realm of hunting in which you're taking people back into the back country so you know i my whole philosophy was with the ecotourism stuff was tapping into a market and potential that is in my opinion probably two three times the size of our hunting industry in alaska and just essentially making money in ways that we weren't making it before, especially during times of the year where we either have very slow amounts of hunting or little to no hunting at all. So it's essentially creating a year round business model on what formerly was seasonal. Yeah, that's awesome. So you're pretty much giving people that um, kind of um, outdoor experience without, you know, that may not be into you know, hunting and, and, uh, harvesting animals is what you're saying. Cor correct. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's very exciting. I mean, it's, for me, it's exciting because I get to do pretty much the same exact job when we're doing that, uh, without actually having to worry about harvesting anything. So we still like to do our, we still get to stalk the bears and stuff like that and getting close for all the photography and everything. So that's, that's, that's really, really fun. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm excited to see where that goes. Ultimately, I think 
that industry and our capacity in that industry, I think is going to be much larger than even the hunting side of things that we currently do. Yeah. I know we were just, uh, I was just talking about this on a previous podcast I just did. Uh, it's also such a cool experience because I mean, as a hunting guide, you always love to go out and take people out hunting, but on another, you know, another spectrum of things, you get to go enjoy the wildlife. Like we all love to do, you know, you get to go see, get up close. People get to take cool pictures of bears. And I mean, you're getting to do hiking and like you said, the kayaking and the fishing and all that, that's a whole nother side. That's like such a smart move on you. So kudos to you. Yep. Thanks. Yeah. We're really excited about it. Um, I think it's going to be a great experience for everybody that's involved and really kind of expanding our horizons for sure. So is that, is that under a team outfitters or. So we actually started a whole nother sister company to that. Uh, it's a team adventures uh, oh. is the, is the name of that company. So yeah, we kind of have our own website for that. We've set up our own social media platforms and stuff like that. So anybody listening who's interested in something like that, I mean, they could definitely go out and check out the website and everything. And we're constantly, we're building all sorts of custom packages for that right now. Uh, that's since we've launched, I, I think we have about six or seven different options for tour packages as we speak. That's cool. Are you, is there any concern of getting people that are like anti-hunting in your sister company and going to have those tough conversations with you? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a worry of ours. Uh, kind of how I've approached this is since I honestly do like so much hunting and in, in the outfitting side of things, we're going to have to vet a lot of these people. You know, I'm not saying like we're going to be very much putting it in their face that we go out and do a lot of the hunting stuff, but within five minutes of a Google search, you're quickly going to realize what I actually do for my main job. So, you know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, you're going to have to find kind of that niche clientele that they might not necessarily be hunters or understand hunting, but they're not the anti hunter type as well. Like, and surprisingly, like marketing all of this, that seems to be the vast majority of the uh, interactions that we have with potential clients is even the people who have never even shot a gun in their life or don't even know anybody, you know, that hunts or have never been part of that culture, you know, they understand in Alaska, the hunting side of things and why we do what we do, whether it be for, you know, harvesting our own meat or, you know, predator management and that sort of thing. So surprisingly, uh, you know, the, the silent majority on this sort of thing seems to be pretty consistent that we, we haven't gotten a lot of negative pushback as of yet. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, that sounds like an exciting adventure and, you know, I wish you, uh, the best of luck going into both the, the A-team outfitting and the A-team adventures. So, um, thanks. I want to roll into talking about this previous guide season. Uh, what were some highlights? What's some things that you took away from uh, this guide season? Um, what's some stuff that you learn? You know, I'm sure every time you go out hunting, you learn about bears. They do something different or change up on you. If you don't mind sharing a few things that you've noticed this year. Yeah. So the biggest problem we had last season was weather related. I mean, it was so wet and cold 
early on in spring. Uh, it was probably one of the nastiest spring seasons that I've ever had in terms of weather. Uh, lots of late snow up in the mountains where we were too. Like when we finally were able to get out in the bush, one of the hunts we did, it was like probably around June 15-ish. We were literally getting snow flurries uh, the one night. I mean, it was just so mm -hmm. cold, so late. Yeah, we couldn't even access wow. a lot of our hunting camps. It was kind of frustrating because I had uh, in late May into early June, I had uh, like six, five or six uh, bear clients that were slated to go out into the field at that time. And we actually had to call each and every one of them up and we're like, hey, man, like the weather is so bad right now and it's been so sloppy. We can't land because when you land in the springtime, it's kind of a... Uh, you kind of have to find a, a like a happy medium and like a middle ground when it comes to the snow conditions. If there is snow at that time of the year, because if the snow is too soft and slushy, you can't land. So, you know, you, you kind of have to have perfect conditions for that. And most of the time around that time frame where I land, uh, either, you know, there's no snow at all, which is usually what happens. Or if there is snow, it's usually still pretty firm and compact up in the mountains. It was just like this constant wet, slushy snow rain mix all the time. I mean, and uh, a lot of times then it would like refreeze overnight. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it was just, it was just the worst conditions to try to land an airplane in. And we just couldn't get out there to land anywhere because the conditions were unsafe. Or half the time we had ice fog and there was no visibility to even get up in the mountains. So we had to push a lot of hunt dates back. And we actually had one client that not once, but twice last year had to reschedule his entire trip. So now he's actually coming next season uh, because we couldn't even get the guy out in the field. It was so bad. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the biggest thing for sure was just dealing with weather and getting more and more uh, equated with, uh, you know, scheduling and how to come up with a plan B in case, you know, you have ordeals like we had last season. Yeah. And how does that do you, so like if someone gets rescheduled with you, do you uh, just call them up and like, Hey, we can reschedule you for next year or do you give a offer a refund or what does that look like? What ideally what happen is we can just redo a reschedule. Uh, it sucks no matter what uh, you do on that because A, if you give a refund, I mean, obviously you've lost out on the money and B, even on a reschedule, uh, you're losing out essentially on the same amount of money because you have them on your book still. I mean, we're still under contract with that client. So, you know, let's say that you have a bear hunt you're doing on September 1 through 10 of this year and you can't make it because of weather and you know i'm pretty uh good about you know that sort of thing like if it's outside of our realm of controllability i make sure we just go ahead and reschedule at no additional cost to the clients even if it costs me you know money i don't care because it yeah. it wasn't anybody's fault but what sucks about that is if I have to push you back to the following year on those dates, well, that's a whole trip now that I can't sell to somebody else. So it's like, you know, you're, you're losing out on making a lot of money at that point. So, you know, that's, what's really frustrating. Luckily uh, we were able to mitigate most of that last year with the rescheduling and we were still able to get people out and have productive hunting seasons. But I mean, it was, I mean, there was times, man, where I was pretty stressed out because you just have a stack of guys in town 
everybody's trying to hop on an airplane to go hunting and everybody's just sitting around looking at each other, wondering what to do next because we could not go anywhere. Yeah. And that, that's gotta be rough sitting in a client's perspective. Like you fly, you know, maybe from the lower 48 or, you know, you're coming into Alaska thinking you're going grizzly hunting. And next thing you know, it's like, it's snowing in June on you, you know? Right. Well, and the thing is frustrating from on both an outfitter perspective and an Alaskan, you know, resident perspective uh, is people who have not experienced this sort of thing. You can't understand it until you see it for yourself. So it's especially when I'm on the phone with somebody and I'm calling them up and I'm, they're, I'm calling them and they're in Texas or Pennsylvania or Michigan at the time. And I'm like, hey, man, I mean, it's the weather's been nasty here and blah, blah, blah. And, and they're like, I think on their end, they're listening to what I'm saying, but it doesn't register. Like they're thinking to themselves like, well, it's I'm in Pennsylvania right now and it's 75 degrees and sunny. And this guy's telling me that it's 28 degrees and snowing sideways in Ju in June, you know? So I, I think they have a hard time even comprehending that. And yeah. then once they see it, they're like, holy crap, this is the real deal. But, you know, that's what's so frustrating is you have to convince people that might not necessarily know any better that what's actually going on is going on. Because I think some clients, not all of them, I have a lot of repeat guys and friends of those return clients and they really take my word on things. But when I have a first time Alaskan hunter who we've never dealt with before, it can get really frustrating because they just, I think it sometimes think that you're just messing with them or like there's just some strange catch to what you're saying, you know, like it's like, no, it's, it's actually this bad and we can't go hunting. And trust me, if, you can't go hunting. We don't make any money at all anyway. So it's like, you know, they, I think that they think there's some conspiracy sometimes. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's funny. Cause like, I'm, you know, I'm down here in Washington and I went to see Kyle last year in June to go fishing with him. And he's like, Hey man, like it's supposed to be pretty rainy and cold up here. Like make sure to pack some layers and that like whole week until the last day, it got to like 70 on the last day, but the whole week was like 50 degrees, uh, 55, 60, and just raining on us most of the time. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, you know, flying out from Washington in June, it's pretty decent down here. You know, I mean, we have some rainy times, but and not like cold, rainy, and the mosquitoes are just swallowing you up. So Right, right, yeah. Totally get that perspective, like, what you're saying you know you're calling this guy in texas and he's like it's 95 degrees out here you know <laughs> yeah so. yeah yeah so i mean that's that's definitely a uh challenge that i don't ever see truly going away that you know from an outfitter's outfitter's perspective up here you know that's just something we have to deal with it just goes with the territory yeah so you're an outfitter and um you know your head guide do you, have you grown? Do you have other guides below you since we've last talked? Yeah, we actually have a team of, uh, we have about three full-time assistant guides that work for us. And plus there's a couple apprentices right now that are in training, working on getting their guide license. So they're uh, packers is what they're typically called. And I don't like calling them packers. Uh, you know, they're more guide apprentices because a lot of times you get, you hire packers just to pack meat for you. These guys are actual like with us 
on all the hunts getting trained uh, to become guides. So I'm hoping uh, one of them, for example, uh, Jake is his name. We're hoping that Jake will completely get through everything this season and have his assistant guide license for 2025 because this is his second season uh, with us right now. So he's doing really, really well. So I'm hoping hoping to get him fully licensed for next year and get him uh, getting him some clients of his own. Yeah. It's such a, a unique program that Alaska offers for uh, guides. I think it's a, like, it. it's kind of like, man, I really want this guy to start guiding for me. But at the same time, you, they're getting so much experience and you know that, you know, after you've trained them up that they're going to do the right things and, and know how to make the right calls. And I think that's smart, uh, honestly. Yeah. Well, and I learn something new every day. Uh, when I'm in the field, you know, and I've been doing this for 10 years and I know people that have been doing this for 50 years and they tell me the same thing. Like out of 50 years of doing this, they, every time they go into the bush, it's a new experience, which I can't say that any better myself. And, you know, it's frustrating, not only from a business perspective of how much training and how much money you have to put into uh, your apprentices at times. And it's frustrating for the apprentice because they want to get a guide license yesterday and they want to start guiding clients, you know, cause you know, that's how they make their bigger paychecks. That's how, you know, they can, uh, you know, afford to take care of themselves better. I mean, Alaska is extremely high cost of living and these guys, you know, even I paid my guys as apprentices, what I was getting paid my first and second year of guiding hunters. So, I mean, I, I do what I can to really help them along, but I mean, it's very frustrating for sure when you're doing all this grunt work for two years, just working yourself, you know, to death every day and yeah. you can't even guide a client. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, but I, overall, I, I think it's a very good program because Alaska is so inherently dangerous and there's so many rules and regulations to everything we do. Like you can, you know, you can sit there and say like, oh, I want to go guide a moose client. And you might even be good at calling moose and, you know, understanding moose, uh, you know, habits. Uh, and you might know, you might be good at stalking moose and killing moose. But that doesn't say that, you know, you're necessarily good at judging, field judging a 50 inch moose, you know, the, the determinants of legality. It might not mean that you have the proper medical training for when you're butchering that moose and somebody accidentally slices themselves open, they're bleeding out. Like, can you actually doctor that person up until you get first responders out there to, you know, uh, evacuate them from the field, you know, like, or do you have the training when you get lost and you're, you know, you realize your GPS battery's dead and you have to find your way back through land navigation. Like, I mean, there's a lot involved in doing this sort of thing. And I think even myself included, uh, we can get really, really comfortable in Alaska in the back country these days with all the technology we have. And when that technology fails you or you find yourself in a bad situation, you need to know how to address that. I mean, our job is so much more than going out and taking people on a hunting trip. I mean, you know, you wear eight, nine, 10 different hats on this sort of thing. I mean, just being a field psychologist alone and keeping your keeping your clients head in the right headspace is some of the biggest challenges sometimes that I have. I mean, I've, I've, I'm not even joking when I tell you the amount of full grown men that I've seen break down and cry or and like just have full fledged mental breakdowns. I think I had mentioned on the last episode I was on with you guys, uh, we had a client 
it was probably about five, six, seven years ago now. I can't even remember exactly, but I mean, the guy was literally threatening, threatening to shoot himself because after like five or six days of just pouring rain and being miserable and soaking wet and tired, I mean, he just one morning, but we ate breakfast and the guy just went completely just nutty on us and just didn't want to be out there anymore. And he just broke down and he was telling us if we didn't get a plane in there to evacuate him. He was going to shoot himself. I mean, that's just how the mind goes on some of these people. So you got to be there to like talk them off the ledge and keep them motivated sometimes because, you know, I, I've seen some crazy stuff out there. Yeah. Well, I, you're, I mean, you're bringing people that like, you know, I think we talked about this last time too, but you're bringing people that maybe like whitetail hunters or, you know, they've done the the stuff on their family's farm and, you know, and then you get them up to Alaska and it's not like you're sitting in a tree stand back at the farm. You're in some real rugged shit, you know? Right. And it, right. Can, it changes on you quick. You can be in places, weather comes in, fog rolls in, things turn you around. It's it's amazing. Yeah, well, I, knock on wood here, have not had the real bad medical emergency yet. Like, I... uh know of several incidences where clients have had heart attacks clients have had really bad falls where they could not no longer physically be mobile enough to get themselves back to camp or back to where an airplane can be in and they got to send a helicopter in to come get them uh one of the pilots that i work with uh quite frequently actually he was telling me last fall about some clients that he had dropped off moose hunting uh, some resident Alaskan hunters and they went out and they had harvested a bull moose and they're in the process of processing this uh, bull and breaking it down uh, to load up in their backpacks to rock the moose back to camp. And in the process, uh, from my understanding, the one guy had a uh, one of the hindquarters and he was propping the hindquarter up uh, doing the cuts around the ball joint to dislocate the hindquarter and put it in a game bag. And at some point he had such a sharp knife that I guess he had stuck through the leg of the moose and it stabbed him right in the thigh. And he didn't know because his knife was so sharp. So he continues to butcher and he loads up in the game bag and he started making a comment that he didn't feel good. And his buddy that was with him like looks at him and there's just blood pouring out of his uh, hip waiter on his on i think it was his left leg if i remember correctly but his left leg just blood's pouring out of it and the dude just like looks down and he just collapses here he had sliced the artery in his leg uh by poking it with the knife because it went clean through the moose quarter and into his leg and it was so sharp he didn't even feel it uh the only reason that guy lived was his buddy had a cat seven tourniquet and was able to wrap it around his leg and then hit the in reach uh sos button but the problem was, was it took like six or seven hours because the weather got so bad for the helicopter to safely get in there and extract the guy. I mean, I mean, that's I mean, even with the, the tourniquet, which obviously saved the guy's life. But you just hit an SOS button and it took a helicopter six to seven hours to come save you. Yeah, You are truly on your own while you're out there. And, you know, we have in Alaska, especially with the Air Force pararescue guys that we have and everything, like we have some of the best combat field medics on the entire planet. 
and even they can't get to you sometimes. I mean, it's to use that knowledge and try to wrap your mind around that statement of how truly on you your own you are. You can't fathom it until you're out there. And I, I, I try my hardest as an outfitter and guide to explain that to my clients before they ever even send me deposit money. And of course they agree to it, but they don't even understand if they haven't been there, they have, don't even understand what they're agreeing to, you know? Yeah. That's crazy. They, uh, <clears throat> at my, at the school I was working at, uh, last year, um, I did an outdoor club there with the kids. Cause it was like a kind of an urban setting. And one mm -hmm. of the things that we got was a, uh, a, we had a battalion chief come in from the local fire department and he taught basic like first aid to these kids. And it's the one thing I've never thought about before, but he comes in and he's like talking to a group of like, you know, third to fifth graders. He's like, if you, if you're going out outdoors and hiking, uh, hunting, fishing, you know, anything, he's like, have one of these tourniquets on you. And I've just never thought about having a tourniquet until then. And now I'm like, Amazon tourniquets, throw them in the backpack, you know, because he, it made a lot of sense. He's like, you just never expect to hurt yourself. But if you fall and you have like a, you know, you, you have your shin come out your leg or you, you just like you said, a knife slips and you hit your artery, like there's no one there to readily like run up the hill you're hiking on or whatever to save you right away. It might be in an hour, two hours, six hours, a day, two days. You just never know, but you just need to be uh, ready for that. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I think even by like military statistics, like those, like a, this tourniquets, like a Cat 7 tourniquet has reduced battlefield related like deaths re uh, related like shrapnel and gunshot wounds by like 80 or 90 percent now. I mean, it's that. Like you mentioned, a tourniquet, cheap, easy to put in a in a backpack. Knowing how to use that, to, you know, something like that, and that sort of gear. I mean, that's in my opinion about one of your most essential pieces of knowledge to go into the back country, whether it's Alaska or anywhere. Uh, you know, everybody talks about like you know when in hunting, you know, stalking and tracking and butchering and that whole side of hunting. I don't think the medical side of thing gets nearly as uh as much press as, as it should. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, a really good point to bring up. So um I wanted to talk to you. So I uh, you know, you you get a lot of people out hunting with you. And uh what's the what's the age group that you get out there that you usually Yes. Yeah, so most of our clients fall between the age category, I would say of about 50 to 75 years old is what I would say most of most of the guys are what we I I could say to some degree you know depending on the type of hunt you do like I'm noticing on mountain hunts like mountain goat doll sheep that sort of thing you're typically getting those guys from like let's say age 40 to 60 I would say so there's a little bit of a younger crowd for that sort of thing, which is good because that's a very, very hardcore hunting, uh, expedition to, you know, you know, take on for yourself. So having those younger clients for the more hardcore mountain hunts is definitely helpful, but for the most part, uh, you know, most of our clientele, you know, they're 50 plus years old. Yeah. Why do you, 
Do you feel like there uh, is a starting to become an age gap in your clientele that come out with you? Do you notice that uh, you may not get as you know young as hunters as like 20 and 30 and maybe not even uh, coming out as a clients with you, but just in general around you in Alaska? Have you noticed that, you know, maybe not as many people are coming into it? Yeah, so for sure, uh, more so on the people that I'm around in public. So like our Alaskan hunts, even historically, uh, we could go back all the way to the 1950s and 60s even, uh, talking to some of the outfitters and guides from back then. Alaskan hunts have always been very expensive compared to elsewhere, uh, no matter what decade you look back into. So what happens with most of clients is they get to an age in life where they're retired. They have disposable income for the first time in their life. But the catch 22 side of things is they may have the money, uh, financial means of doing it, but now they don't have the physical means to do these expensive trips. You know, when you look at a moose hunt now in Alaska, that's averaging at about, you know, most moose hunts are going to cost you, 20 to $35,000 to go on a guided 10 day moose hunt. Uh, uh, but so it's like not many people have that sort of disposable income. So it's like, you look at the the niche group of hunters as it is already, but I think it's like 1% of the U S population is like an actual licensed hunter. It's very, very small. And then you take that percentage and, you know, maybe out of that 1%, another, you know, few percentage point uh, percentage of the population has enough disposable income to even do that once in their life, you know, moose hunting trip in Alaska. So I think that on our side of things is kind of biased from a guide's perspective. Cause like I said, a lot of our clients are just aged out by design, but I know, I will say that in the general public, like a lot of the resident hunters and stuff that I see, there is definitely not as much uh, of a new upbringing of hunters, I would say for sure. Most kids nowadays that I'm seeing, they're not as much in Alaska, so to speak, because we're a pretty outdoorsy state. And like a lot of the parents up here and grandparents are really keeping their kids involved in the outdoors. But, you know, even in Alaska, we do see it in some regard where kids are more indoors. They want to play video games. They want to be on their cell phone. They want to watch, you know, name any various streaming services or YouTube. That, that's what kids, uh, modern kids are more and more into nowadays. And then also, I think a lot of that has to do with bad propaganda that you see nowadays in regards to hunting and firearms ownership and that sort of thing, where it's kind of keeping parents who, maybe even at one time did something like that in their life. Maybe they hunted a little bit or owned guns, but then next thing you know, uh, you know, CNN is showing a new mass shooting that went on and, you know, they're making it look like, Oh, well, these gun owners are bad people. So you shouldn't own a gun. And I think, I think that's really ingraining itself in the minds of modern Americans. And I think that's changing that dynamic for sure. I mean, you see some States like even Pennsylvania where I grew up, uh, you talk to anybody who grew up in even the 70s and 80s, they all talk about how kids during deer season or even one of the small game seasons, they'd have rifles and shotguns in the back of their pickup trucks at the high school. 
we didn't have mass shootings or anything back then, but like the hunting and gun culture was, you know, huge amongst even uh, the rural populations out here. And nowadays, I mean, even in places where 30 years ago, everybody hunted, everybody owned guns. Now it's like a complete change to where nobody even partakes in that sort of lifestyle. And there's almost a, like a negativity associated to hunters and, you know, people who own guns. And there's like a level of fear mongering that seems to go on. Yeah. I hope to see that change, but I've also can say on the positive side of that, uh, there's more female hunters now than I've ever, you know, seen. And even statistically, that's been uh, a proven fact is even in Alaska. I mean, uh, I see women hunters all the time, the boyfriends, the dads, you know, the husbands, the grandfathers, they're taking the the women in their lives and getting them out in the outdoors. So I think that's the fastest growing statistic of new hunters. Uh, but, you know, overall, uh, I could definitely say that the overall population of people getting into it is probably shortening compared to what it used to be. Yeah. Bring up some good points there. So what can, or I just say, what can we do, you know, as outdoors people? And then what do you personally do to help encourage, get more people uh, involved outdoors? Yeah. So I think a general basis for people who are involved in our sorts of activities is, you know, getting out there and educating people. One of the problems that I find with whether you're a hunter or gun owner uh, or, you know, it, you kind of fall into that category of, you know, outdoorsmen is a lot of us, we're not as vocal as we should be. Uh, I, I notice a lot of the anti-hunter, anti-gun groups, they're, they're quite loud about their belief systems. While we as hunters, like let's say, for example, you know, you go out and you go to your favorite elk hunting spot or your favorite whitetail hunting destination. We don't like to talk about that sort of thing as hunters. You know, you're not going to go and tell you know, somebody who's wanting to get into hunting, oh, well, come elk hunting with me. I'll show you my, my, my great spot so you can come shoot an elk in my hunt in my honey hole. You know, so there's a lot of people that may uh, even want to get into hunting, but they don't even know how to go about doing it because most hunters in me, myself included, uh, I even have to say to some regards, you know, you're kind of reluctant on taking people out to some of these places that you hunt and or trap and fish and that sort of thing. Uh, one thing that I've gotten better at is, you know, I'm, I'm getting more into doing the hunter's ed stuff. Like I'm actually in the process of getting to become a licensed instructor in Alaska. And I'm planning on working with uh, uh, Alaska Department of Fish and Game, traveling the state to even some of our remote villages and teaching kids, you know, hunter's education and things like that. And using some of my, my stories from uh, a guide's perspective to help educate the general public as well. And that's honestly, guys, like that's one of the reasons I like doing these types of podcasts, because this is a great media outlet for this sort of discussion. Uh, you know, everybody's getting into podcasts these days. And, you know, this is a great outlet to discuss this sort of a topic and educate the general public. I mean, I, I was just at uh, Chicago land uh, expo. It's a hunting, fishing and outdoor expo. And I couldn't believe uh, the amount of people in from inner city Chicago area that would come up to me and they're like, Hey, you know, I've been watching some YouTube videos on these guys that are going hunting and fishing and trapping. It looks really interesting. Like, you know, how do I go about doing it? Like, I want to hire a guide 
to take me out into the back country and teach me how to, you know, how to go hunting, how to butcher, you know, how to skin and do all these sorts of things. So I think there's a, you know, there might be a population of people out there for sure that have interest in doing it. But we as outdoorsmen that are already doing the thing, we need to be more involved in educating and showing these people how to get involved in it themselves. Yeah. You know, you bring up a good point, too, about uh, bringing people out to, you know, our honey holes. And, you know, as much as you want to get these people out and get them hunting, it's like our our public land, especially down here in Washington State, we've you know, I, I know by a personal, uh, example is that I, I was hunting this one, uh, little plot just uh, like an hour from me. And, uh, we got, we harvested a deer on it with my friend, uh, Michael, he did a podcast with us. Well, I go back the next year and it's all blocked off saying like no parking, no access, no nothing. And I was like, damn, just the year before this was open to, you know, come and hunt deer and, and, uh, get outdoors and explore. And it's like, you know, so it's like you, you take people out, but you're also losing public land. And that's, that's just getting tough in general to get, you know, you bring the populations of hunters up. You're also losing your uh, land that you can go use. So it's like, it's just a constant battle, especially public land is, I mean, that's a, that can be a tough thing down in the lower 48. Right. Well, and, and that's the big problem for sure is public land access, uh, you know, even private land access. Like I remember, like every time I come up to Pennsylvania here to do the Great American Outdoor Show where we have a booth, I drive through the areas where as a kid, I I grew up hunting, you know, whether it be deer, turkey, what have you. And most of those properties now that I used to hunt that were even private lands that farmers just let you go onto their property to hunt deer and, you know, varmints and stuff like that. They're all posted now. Uh, you know, they were having problems with people littering and, you know, somebody would get injured on their property and try suing them and stuff like that. So now places are just shutting down, you know, public access that they used to work with fishing game and allow people to hunt on They're They're not doing it anymore. So that's definitely one of the big hurdles, especially for people who don't, know where to even begin like where do you even go hunting uh and that's just in you know our lifetime uh what i've seen happening uh with with land access so that's probably as time goes on i don't see that getting any better honestly there would have to be a substantial amount of change and i would say people that have interest in doing it you know as you're trying to make that happen and you keep running into these hurdles and these obstacles eventually people are just not going to have interest in it anymore and they're just going to back out of it completely yeah i mean i see a lot of places or a lot of posts on facebook um you know um it seems to be i see it more um you know on pages like hunting in washington and stuff like that washington hunting or whatever and somebody will go on there and they'll be like hey i'm just getting into it can somebody take me out and show me or like, can you, can somebody recommend me a spot? And, you know, just kind of going through the whole take, you don't want to necessarily take somebody to your honey hole, right? Because it takes you a long time to find it. Or, you know, maybe it's producing for you and you want to kind of keep it quiet. But again, it goes to what you're saying. It's like, there's starting to be fewer and fewer places to do it. And 
I, I also want to, I guess, touch on this, what they call gatekeeping thing. Like I understand people want to hide their spots and I got spots that I haven't told anybody. Right. But there is a point where we can't have gatekeepers in the community where you have to be open like yourself, where you're open to teaching somebody, showing somebody, taking somebody out. Otherwise it's just going to die. Especially as you know, myself personally, I don't plan on having kids anytime soon. Um, I won't have any kids personally to take out. So I got to be able to find other people that I can, can teach and help to pass on, you know, my knowledge and just try to foster that community as best as I can. Right. Right. And I mean, that's, that's definitely, uh, for the continuity of what we do as hunters or like what I do as a, you know, or us as guides, you know, it's, I always say to myself, am I even going to have a job, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now with this, with, with this industry, the way it's going, uh, whether it be, there's just not enough people to even go around that are interested in doing this sort of thing, or are we going to get regulated to death to where the state, you know, or federal governments just completely start shutting this stuff down. I mean, I have friends that are guides and outfitters all over the world. And we're lucky here in America to have a gun culture, have a hunting culture, but our entire livelihood and the lifestyle that we love can just disappear overnight as soon as, you know, some politician in some far off urban city just decides, you know, to throw their hands up in the air and say enough is enough. Uh, you know, like, I mean, you see this all the time in countries all over the world and you just think to yourself, when is that sort of a policy going to find its way here into America? How would you, you know, encourage people to get more involved? Like, I, I know that, you know, there's a lot of legislature right now on, on firearms, on hunting rights. Um, how, how would you encourage people to get more involved and try to have a say in that? I mean, it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing because, if you look at it from a diplomatic standpoint, you know, they always say, you know, well, you know, contact your elected official, let them know what you're thinking and blah, blah, blah. In my opinion, politicians just are going to have their agendas no matter what. And, you know, you can argue and speculate, you know, some politicians you might as a public, you know, uh, representative, you know, they might look at what a group of people is saying and take it to heart. But a lot of them, you know, they're fixated on their belief system. And at the end of the day, uh, that politician, that political group, their special interest groups, I feel that they're going to try to do ultimately what they want to do. Uh, but it's definitely important, nevertheless, to, you know, unify and get out there and really speak our piece about what we believe in. One of the big problems us as outdoorsmen have, too, uh, whether it's just the firearms community, the hunting in, in, or the hunting industry is there's a lot of division amongst ourselves. I mean, how many times do you see on an internet forum where guys will just sit there and argue about, you know, what archery is, you know, like you'll see, oh, well, you're not an archer if you use a crossbow. Well, you're not an archer unless you use a, a traditional bow and this and that. And guys are literally like killing themselves you know, in debates about, you know, who's the better hunter, let alone, uh, you know, what we should be worried about is what they're talking about in Washington, D.C. or your state capital uh, and what they're trying to pass on a legislative side of things that 
could ultimately mean you lose all of your hunting rights. We're seeing this all the time with predators. Uh, you know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Keaton, but like in Washington state, didn't you guys end up losing like your bear hunting to some degree not long ago? Yeah, we just lost our spring bear hunting. And then there's like, there's not a, I haven't heard a for sure thing, but there's uh talk about maybe banning, uh, I don't know if it's banning coyote hunting or like uh, regulating it on like what we can do, what times a day. Cause right now it's, it's like 24 seven, any time of the day you can hunt coyotes from what I, I understand. I haven't done a whole lot of it, but it, it's just, we're starting to see little steps, uh, towards, uh, it, towards our predator management that uh, these people think that this, these animals can balance themselves out, which we're finding out that that's probably not the, <laughs> the best case scenario per se. Right. And we're seeing that like even in Alaska all the time with just our hunting regulations, like one of the scary things for me, one of the places I hunt and guide a lot up in the Arctic. I mean, it's a huge political battleground right now for caribou hunting. Uh, you know, you have the native tribal councils making arguments about how we need to regulate and or straight up ban caribou hunting for anybody who's not a resident of one of the localized villages up there i mean it's preposterous that to think that uh just some statistics here on, on regards to that hunting i think it's I'm almost certain on the every year for like let's say the past 10 years it's been under 300 mature bull caribou that have been harvested by non-residents in that area mind you this area like this unit 26 i mean i want to say it's about roughly the land mass of the size of texas if i'm not mistaken and these tribal councils are essentially trying to take over all this land for themselves and they're killing 13 14 15 thousand caribou a year on a diminishing caribou herd and they're shooting cows they're shooting calves i mean they're shooting everything they're allowed five a day non-residents going up there are allowed one one bull caribou a season and they're killing about 300 bulls caribou don't reproduce nearly as fast as say like a white tailed deer or any other member of the deer family uh so and they're also very dependent on like their uh like the lichens and things like that that they use for food and as temperatures statistically are getting warmer and warmer in the summer in the arctic and things are drying out they're having a hard time finding feed. So you have a mass population of people up there killing cows and calves mixed with the fact that, you know, there's drought and everything is, you know, reducing the amount of food available to them. They're not looking at the actual problem, but instead, you know, it's this turns into this hunter versus hunter thing, you know, and they're trying to, you know, regulate who can, you know, have access to these animals. But the people who have the act, the most access are the ones causing the problem. You know, uh, that I mean, that's just one of the many things that we have going on in Alaska right now on a regulatory side of things where the science isn't being used. It just comes down to who uh, who's talking to the politicians the most, because any common sense would tell you on even the caribou regulation side of things. You know, if we're going to regulate something, we need to be regulating something that makes sense, but it has nothing to do with that. It's just what what's a good talking point and we'll run with it. One, you know, one thing 
let me bring I'm gonna bring us back to Washington here. Uh is our wolf population. Uh it it's pretty interesting to hear people talk about our wolf population and then they get like like I, I know Kyle has gotten wolves on his uh trail cams when he was living down here and they didn't even think there's like you you'll mention it to the state and they'll pretty much tell you like hey no there's no uh no wolves in this area and actually the area that Kyle was uh we were talking about um I was looking at it and there it says that it's a single wolf territory according to their uh growth and wolf packs and breeding pairs in 2022 so it's pretty crazy and he had a whole you had like a whole wolf pack right Kyle yeah, I think I had like eight on camera, and um, well, I think one of them was collared. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a it's a whole pack. Like it's a it's a big area. And I, not only did we see them, um, you know, we found we found a fresh kill. Found um, we heard them howling. Like we've seen sign all year. We you know, found out where. Not a small population, that's for sure. Yeah, that's very interesting because you know, obviously, you know, like you just said, they're they're also denying the amount of you know that what the true population is. I don't understand. I mean, I, I love animals. I also hunt animals and understand how wildlife management needs to work. Not only just from you know, you can argue I'm a, I have a biased perspective on things, but I do a lot. I have a lot of conversations with a lot of people who spend their entire lives studying these animals from a scientific perspective and, you know, they're, they're career biologists. And what people don't get is, is America, or I should say just North America or the world even in general, it's not like it was 500 years ago. Like Keaton mentioned about like how people think that, Oh, well, these animals are just going to regulate themselves. Well, Yes and no, like they're going to regulate themselves, but through a means of complete ecological disaster. Uh, it's not like it was like Alaska is a perfect time capsule, I guess you can say to some regards of what the world was like 500 years ago. You go up to the Arctic of Alaska, where especially the interior part of the Arctic, where there's no villages and things aren't getting messed with very much by humans. Uh Wolves and caribou and bears and moose, they they behave the same way they did 500 years ago. And we know based off of like studies that we've done up here in Alaska, we're just now really getting good data on this uh, since Alaska has you know, become a state. We think it's around a 40 year cycle, predator prey cycle that goes on in the state up here where let's say, for example, you have a population area of moose and grizzly bears. In about a 40-year period, the grizzly population hits a peak, and that grizzly population will completely decimate the moose population there. The moose are completely wiped out, and then what happens then is you have a mass starvation of the predators in that area. Whether it be the surviving moose that survived the onslaught or additional moose from surrounding areas coming in, the area then starts to repopulate well, with herbivores, and then that cycle kind of resets itself and it starts over again. Within varying degrees of years, I mean, that's pretty much 500 years ago. That's what it would have been like all throughout North America. But what people don't realize now is, is we have major cities 
in what used to be the prime habitats for most of these animals. You have a place like San Francisco, for example, that used to be prime habitat for grizzly bears. And now San Francisco is sitting there. So to think that we can just take wolves, put them in a place like how they just did with Colorado, let them loose and just say, okay, well, we're going to let nature take its course. I think that is very, very uh, ignorant of, you know, even science and wildlife management in general, because I can predict to you right now that they're not going to regulate wolves at all in Colorado. They're planning on getting 40 to 50 wolves in the state, from my understanding, in the range that they've introduced them in. Uh, what their game plan is once they hit 40 to 50 wolves, you know, I, I don't know. I don't even think they've thought that far ahead, but I can guarantee you uh, that they're going to be very, very restrictive on any sort of wolf management in Colorado, especially for the upcoming, you know, probably 10, 20, 30 years. And that population I would predict would start getting out of control. I mean, they're a keystone apex predator and the area that they were introducing these wolves from my understanding uh, has a pretty decent population of Shiras moose, for example, Shiras moose, have really kind of made a comeback in places like Colorado in the past, you know, 20, 30 years, what's going to happen to those populations now that they've just dropped wolves off in there, you know, to their calves, I would predict a lot of those, that calf population is going to drop off. And that's what happens when you don't regulate your predators in an area, you know, it goes back to the hunting side of things too. Like we as hunters, you know, we're chasing, we're chasing deer, elk, moose, caribou, that sort of thing, but nobody's chasing after the predators and the predators are hunting the same prey we are. Eventually you're going to have a major, major uh, malfunction in the ecosystem. Yeah. It's, it's one thing to introduce a species, but if you don't have a plan or even if you have a plan on how to manage it, um, but you have a lot of opposition, it makes it really tough. I mean, Montana and Idaho, you know, they had wolves introduced and, you know, come down from Canada, move up from Wyoming. But, you know, they took so long to actually open a, a wolf season and, and actually manage populations that, you know, their, their prey animals suffered, the deer and the elk and the moose. And then now look at Washington. Uh, I was just talking to my dad the other day. You know, we used to have a very, very small population of mountain caribou in the very northeast corner of the state. And now we have none. And a large part of that is, you know, the population management of the predators. I I have no, uh, I, I have no, uh, what's what I'm thinking of? I, I can't see Washington in the foreseeable future opening a wolf season same thing with colorado just because of the political climate and i think if you introduce these things and you don't manage them like you said you're going to have you know repercussions on your prey species and then yeah trying to fight it politically and get those people that are against hunting or even against predator hunting to change their minds and be like okay yeah I understand it's it's very very difficult and I don't know I don't know how in some places are going to come back from that. Yeah, I mean I would say that some places I don't think you're ever going to get a comeback from it. I I think we're entering a a situation where things are just going to be changed forever. Uh you even see places like, you know, the upper peninsula of Michigan. I have a lot of hunters that come out of Michigan and 
they've sold all their hunting camps in the UP. A lot of these guys I talked to because it used to be a Mecca for white tailed deer hunting. There used to be moose everywhere in the UP. You hard, I mean, the deer numbers, the moose numbers, everything's just plummeted up there since Michigan had its wolf reintroduction. You know, you're going to see the same thing in Washington. You're going to see it in Colorado. You've seen it already in places like Idaho and Montana. I'm just, I'm very fortunate as of now, I live in a state, you know, where, you know, how Alaska regulates its, its predators. I mean, we have very generous wolf seasons and bear hunting and everything like that. I mean, our, you know, politics hasn't found its way into the scientific uh, process of wildlife and, you know, in game management in Alaska yet. Like it has in, sadly, what I feel, the vast majority of the other states. Hopefully that stays strong. The way that politics seem to be swinging these days, it's only a matter of time before we start seeing like ballot box legislation and stuff like that happening here in Alaska as well. And and that's very, very concerning, especially on some of our, our wildlife populations that are vulnerable in certain parts of the state. Uh, I, I just, I hope and hope that, you know, we don't get as, uh, kind of off the chain as you're seeing with some of these other states where they're just doing things completely nonsensically just based off of feel good policy and nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a big part of that kind of circling back to what we talked to is teaching people, encouraging people to get outdoors, teach them why it's important, you know, how to harvest their own food, whether that be fish game foraging, um, I, I know people, like you said, there are people in Alaska, people everywhere, honestly, in big in towns that are surrounded by an outdoor culture that don't do anything outdoors and they'd rather be inside, they'd rather be playing video games on their phone. I think this is the most important time to be open to bringing people into the industry or I mean, not necessarily into the industry, but just into the culture and show them so that... Well, especially I'm here in Anchorage, I'm in Alaska. I'm slowly seeing fewer and fewer people, like you're saying, in the young, younger ages getting involved. And this is the time that we got to get more people involved or things are going to start happening like they are in the lower 48. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I would definitely say that's only a matter of time for sure, uh, especially as the as the older population ages out and that becomes a thing of the past, you know, I. Uh, technology is not going away and creature comforts aren't going away. That's only going to expand rapidly. So, you know, like you said at best, now is probably the most critical time in our history to preserve, you know, the traditions of hunting and the shooting sports that, you know, that we have and, you know, that we love. So I wanted to share this. I'm coming back to wolves. We're kind of hopping around here. But I wanted to share this article I read. This is uh, from the spokesman.com. It's a blog. Uh, it was written in December 1st, 2011. This has stuck with me for years. Um, they had a wolf. I'm going to just graze over this article. But it had they had a two-and-a-half-year-old wolf um, that traveled 300 miles uh, looking for a mate. Uh, and it ended up, let's see, uh, a wolf in 2008 traveled roughly 3,000 oh, 3, miles on a journey from near Bozeman to Vail, Colorado. Um, that was another, I think that was another wolf, but uh, it's pretty interesting. They, they've tracked some of these wolves like 
Um, I can't find the one and I don't know exactly the towns, but I, I'm pretty sure they tracked one from like Idaho down to like the coast of Oregon. Um, it, it's pretty insane how far they're traveling. So to come back on this wolf topic too, real quick, um, you know, they have track of certain packs, but they're not keeping track of these lone wolves that get kicked out of the pack and now are traveling trying to find a mate and start their own packs and when they do become successful you know you might have a wolf traveling from montana idaho into washington or into oregon or down into uh colorado it's like well, how many of those do we have inside right you just released two you know two three four wolves into colorado how many are existing that you don't know about mm -hmm. It's it's pretty interesting. I, I find that fascinating. I never knew that they could travel that far personally. Um, it's pretty interesting, like really interesting to me. Right. And what what you'll end up having happen is it happens a lot in places like Alaska where, you know, you'll have a let's say you have a pack of wolves that will go into an area. They'll kill out, run out the vast majority of game in an area once their population, you know, decimates the area. They just move. They'll just head to a whole new area. And we have a lot of room to maneuver and move around up here in Alaska. But you go to any of these like lower 48 states, like I mentioned, Michigan or like Wisconsin and places like that. Hell, hell even Colorado. Uh, once that population gets so high and they keep hitting all these pockets of wildlife and they just decimate the herbivores in each one of these zones eventually they just kind of run out of areas to go especially when nothing is keeping that you know that predator population in check and you know what happens when that happens you know when there's just there's just too low of a herbivore population to even sustain the predators that they've put into these areas i don't think they've even thought that far ahead on what's going to happen especially because they don't have any intentions of you know shooting these wolves at all uh so I I I think it's actually kind of a you know the possibility for a bleak future of all of this is actually pretty high, uh, especially as they keep finding out how much uh, these animals like to move around. Yeah, you know, I I know even from mountain lions, like mountain lions travel even further than wolf packs do. We're getting mountain lions that we know for certain now in southeast Alaska because they're moving in from British Columbia. Like we don't have an actual established mountain lion season or anything like that in Alaska, but from plenty of articles that I've read, especially as uh, historically winter times have been getting warmer and warmer and that population of uh, mountain lions in British Columbia continues to increase. They're expanding their range and coming into Alaska now too. So, I mean, who knows what's actually out there and what's moving around uh, on the side of predator, you know, uh, of predators and, but how that management's going to take place five, 10, 15 years from now, I think we need to be taking steps right now to get that under control. Because if we don't, we're eventually going to hit a point where all is going to be lost and it's going to be too late to do anything about it. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, this will be the last of this topic, but to kind of send us out it's important i don't want people that may listen to this and love wolves and and predators they're important to our ecosystem um they're you know they're beautiful creatures uh we love to look at them just as much as anything but at the same time as a person that cares about wildlife i think i can speak on all of us is that you have to manage them so that they don't suffer like you mentioned before a, a painful death 
right? I mean, if you have this wave, eventually you're going to lose your your deer, your moose, your elk populations, all those, and your predators are going to suffer. So if you can manage them, then you'll have a longer lifespan throughout your whole ecosystem. Mm-hmm. 100%. And I think that even goes on the flip side. I mean, even with herbivores like deer, I mean, if you have a deer population that's completely unchecked and there's no predators and there's no people hunting them, it's the same concept. I mean, you'd get so overpopulated with deer where they completely overbrowse their entire ecosystem as well. Uh, with the way that human development and expansion is and the way we keep destroying more and more habitat for these animals, uh, wildlife management's more important now than it ever has been. Yeah. Well, is there anything that, uh, you wanted to you know, mention it all on this topic before we kind of wrap it up and move on to what your upcoming season looks like. No, I mean, I think we covered uh, that pretty good, but yeah, I mean, in regards to, you know, next season and what I have going on, I mean, I think it's going to be pretty extensive for me next year. I think next year's uh, 2024 and even going in the 25s looking like it's going to be the biggest season that I've had to date by far. Uh, Lots of really cool stuff going on. A lot of articles that I have coming out with Furfish Game in 2024. Uh, doing a lot of stuff with the Sportsman's Channel to some degree. I, you know, I can kind of talk about. Uh, you know, it's there's several different shows, and as they come about, I'll I'll be posting them regularly on social media once uh, once I get those shows filmed and you know published. Lots of bear hunts that we're going to be filming this year uh, with Sportsman's Channel. Last fall, I did a hunt with Mountaintop Outdoors. Uh, it aired, uh, I think it was uh, just at the very end of December. Here in a few months, that'll be available on uh, Mountaintop Outdoors is, you know, all their social media and stuff like that once it does its run through the Sportsman's Channel. But, you know, that was a hell of a hunt we did uh, with Butch Bauer and Mountaintop Outdoors. Got a really, really nice grizzly hunt on film. And uh, we were able to harvest a bear, really nice blonde Keller phase grizzly up in the up in the uh, interior mountains. So that was awesome. Uh, I, the brand and what we're doing, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Uh, I'm at the Harrisburg, getting ready to start the Harrisburg Great American Outdoor Show tomorrow going to run that for the entire length i think it's like 11 days so hopefully we'll get some of our last clients that we need to get booked there at the show but yeah i mean we're gonna be very very busy that's awesome that's awesome and you're all uh, booked up for this season yeah pretty much there's only a few slots of bear hunts i have left uh this season but for the most part we're about 90 percent booked for this year and probably about I'm going to say probably about half booked for next year already. Yeah. Nice. And, you know, uh, run through real quick to, for folks that, you know, maybe didn't listen to you the first time, um, you know, what you do offer and what, what hunts you'll be offering this year. Yeah. So pretty much what we have available right now is, uh, for those that don't know, we kind of specialize in grizzly bear, brown bear, black bear hunts. We also do moose, some limited caribou, and some predator hunting as well. But by far, our bread and butter is the bear uh, side of things. Uh, one of the new features that we have added this season is I've just started uh, working with a homesteader in uh, a very, very remote place in the interior where I'm going to be leasing his cabins and his private runway. And we're going to be getting some really good access to some really good bear hunting country that gets very low, you know, very, very little pressure. 
out that way. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I think we're going to be harvesting some very large old bears that just have no hunting pressure whatsoever. So uh, I'll be definitely uh, sending you guys hopefully some big bear pictures here this spring and fall because I think we're going to really hit that nail on the head for sure. So that's probably our biggest thing that we're booking for right now. And we're doing some bookings for that. And uh, we have a couple of dates in June as well as early August uh, for the salmon runs. Uh, we're going to be hunting those brown bears on salmon from our cabins. So, you know, that's something that, you know, if somebody's interested in doing a brown bear hunt i mean i think that's gonna be a really unique trip to be able to go on and you'd have a little bit of luxury involved as well yeah that's awesome and how can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about that yeah so uh the easiest way to get a hold of us uh we've uh, my girlfriend Brittany, she's really big on the the social media marketing stuff so you can get a hold of us on facebook or our instagram uh, it's a team outfitting, uh, obviously on the social media platforms. So you can go to our website, ateamoutfitting.com. We're really ramping up our website and social media and we're constantly doing, uh, you know, a bunch of posts and we're going to be doing a lot of that this year. We're probably going to be starting up kind of a little YouTube marketing channel sort of thing for the, uh, hunts as well. Brittany's really good with working a camera and we're planning on filming some of these bear hunts and posting them up on a YouTube channel dedicated to the, to the business as well. So you guys will definitely be able to look forward to that. That's awesome. Sweet. Oh yeah. Um, I got a question for you. Uh, yep. have you seen any more of Mr. Petey? I was waiting for the question. I was waiting for it the whole episode. So yeah, we haven't. Mr. Petey hasn't made his return yet. But you know, at any day, I'm just, I'm just waiting for it. Uh, we awesome. uh, that'll forever go down as one of the most memorable experiences <laughs> I've ever had with a client. Oh man, that's awesome. If you want to hear that yeah. story, go listen to the last ti- last episode Tyler was on and uh he breaks it down. It was it's legendary. You got to listen to it. <laughs> so I, I, every well, I would say ever since then I've wanted to do like a young guys podcast slash a team outfitting collaboration on like a Mr. PD shirt. I think that'd be awesome. <laughs> we will make that if you or if you guys are serious about that, we'll make that happen. All right. Do it. Yeah. We got to talk to our people, make sure that it's, uh, there's some not liability or anything in there. <laughs> yeah, want, definitely. We don't yeah, want we'll, to we'll back for credit, you know? Right. Right. But yeah, we'll de- you definitely keep me posted on that because I'd be all about a, a collaboration for mi- dedication to Mr. Petey. Oh, hell yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Is there anything else that you wanted to share? I think we've, we've covered a lot of great topics. Um, I think that, it, you know, you've covered a lot of things. I got one last question for you or Kyle will send it to you, but, uh, anything else? I think, I mean, I, like you said, I think we covered quite a bit on this and, you know, in regards to what I'm looking forward to next season, I mean, I definitely think we, we hit that, uh, the way we should have. And like I said, I'm just really excited uh, to be sharing all this content that we're about to be getting here in the upcoming months with everybody. Uh, like I said, we just keep expanding and things keep getting bigger and bigger for us on, on our end. That's awesome. Heck yeah. Well, since the last time we had you on, um, we added a question that we've been asking all of our guests. And you know, now that we've having people 
um, returning, or we want to ask him this question because we really like it. And that is, what is one word that describes you? I would say that one word, and I think this word describes all of the people that are in my industry, and that's grit. Grit is the absolute most important thing to do what we do up here uh, in Alaska. Any any backcountry hunter that you know spends a lot of their time in the Alaskan outdoors can, I would say, definitely agrees with that term. Uh, you know, I spend 250 to 300 days a year in the bush and as beautiful and amazing as it is i mean it's about as deadly of a country as you know you can imagine i actually funny the thing is how i always describe it alaska to people who have never been here i describe alaska as beautifully deadly and you know you have to be a certain type of person to be out here in these woods and you know embrace this sort of a lifestyle you almost have to immerse yourself in it the same way that the moose, the caribou and the bears do. And you almost have to become one with it yourself, you know? So I would definitely say that's a, a term that not only describes me, but I think would describe anybody who's, uh, you know, in this job position that I have. Yeah, that's awesome. Gave me goosebumps. <laughs> that was cool. That's a, the, the probably one of the better ones. Wouldn't you say, Kyle? Yeah, yeah, I love it. They're all great, but yeah, that was awesome. Well, cool. Thanks. You ready for a send out, Kyle? Let's do it. All right. Well, that was another episode of the Young Guides podcast. Uh, we just want to thank Tyler for hopping on tonight and uh, chatting our ears off about some policies, uh, about A-Team Outfitters. Uh, what's that sister company called again? A-Team? A-Team Adventures. A-Team Adventures. Uh, if you're interested in taking a trip with Tyler, Tyler's an outstanding guy. Uh, we just, you, you can go to ateamoutfitters.com, right? Yes. Yep. And they got social media, uh, Instagram and Facebook, so you can check it out. Um, we just uh, want to thank you again, Tyler, for hopping on tonight. And uh, it's been a, it's been a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me again, guys. It's, it's a great time as always. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just some upcoming events. Uh, we're going to be doing a fly tying night coming up here. Uh, I'm, I'm aiming for, uh, Saturday, February. I think it's the 15th. Uh, I'll post it on our, uh, social media. Um, Cedar river cleanup, uh, August 10th, 2024, put that on your horizon, save the date. Uh, it's always a good time. Food trucks, giveaways, uh, just, just, Coming together, people of all backgrounds and creeds coming together to make the this river a better place. So if you are in town on August 10th and uh, want to be a part of it, stay tuned. Uh, check out our Facebook page or follow us, uh, the Young Guides Podcast, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, and you can also find us on Go Wild. Um, so, Kyle, anything you got coming up? Uh, yeah, the, the Bait Shack is hosting the 36th annual Jewel Lake Jamboree uh, next Saturday, February 10th. Um, that's from 10 to 3 p.m. or 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. That's for, you know, people of all ages who want to get into ice fishing. There's going to be a bunch of stuff there for you to get involved. There's going to be several um, you know, other businesses there at the Jamboree. Um, go out, it's free, go catch some fish. Jewel Lake, you know, gets freshly stocked. They're probably stocking either this week. Yeah, I think they're probably stocking it this week or early next week. And go catch yourself a bunch of fun little 8 to 12 inch stocked salmon. 
be a great way to get um you know into ice fishing um and then the next one is uh friday february 16th um is the alaska wild project draw results party um you know i've heard tell there's going to be several draw results parties um you know in in anchorage uh, in the valley and there's some other ones in the state that i, I know we're getting hosted this year but um uh, this is the one that I'm going to be headed out to our buddies over there at AWP. You're going to be putting that on. It's at double shovel uh, from six to 9 PM that night. Um, for those of you not in Alaska, February 16th is the day that the draw results come out for us. Cause our, our results or excuse me, our applications are due uh, the 15th of December. So it's you know the earliest out of all the States and um yeah, it's it should be a holiday. It should be an Alaskan holiday because everybody's holding their breath right now, seeing what they got drawn for, and and uh, this is a night to you know celebrate that. Um, talk about upcoming hunts. Uh, there's gonna be a moose calling competition. There's gonna be some trivia, and uh, there's gonna be some prizes, some giveaways. And um, I actually just two days ago ran down to the the studio there and dropped off um, a box of flies that I tied up and some podcast stickers, some bear paw stickers. And, uh, you know, if you go to the party, um, you might just win a box of my favorite guide guide patterns for, um, you know, what I do up off the parks highway. And uh, I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of other cool prizes and just fun times there. It's a, it's going to be a cool location. It's always a good time and uh, bring your friends bring some buddies bring a significant other and just enjoy well, hearing stories should be a good good time yeah can i expect a size 22 blue wing in that box or what kyle you know i don't know if uh it's top it's top secret yeah it, it, it's top secret yeah. i i saved my size 22s for the russian nice <laughs> nice the sock i run uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I only floss with size twenty two blooming olives, dude. That don't tell them our secret. That's what we were slaying them on. My bad, my bad. Uh, that's awesome. All right, well, this was another episode of the Young Guides podcast, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. <laughs>